Thanks, Ben. Well, great to be together and great to be starting a new series. It's, um, it's always great to be uh, into our kind of summer series. This year we've chosen a particular topic. We've chosen the topic, uh, the best news you've never heard. Uh, it, um, we've used that little phrase, never heard, because our sense is that lots of people have heard about Christianity. They've heard about church. They may have even heard about Christians and so on and Jesus, perhaps. But the, the actual content of what Christianity says, what it believes, what it does, uh, who Jesus actually is, the actual content, most people, it seems to us, have never actually discovered the truth of what's going on. Many people cast it as just another religion, uh, and so our sense is that there's news here about the Christian faith that people have never actually heard. And if we can get that through, if we can actually explain what really is going on, then the difference is massive. And so that's the series we're looking at. And the particular one that we're looking at uh, this morning, it begins the whole thing, is an extraordinary claim that the Christian message makes that there is a God who really cares. There is a God who really cares. Now, for many people, that is an utterly surprising claim. Uh, lots of people would think of God perhaps and think of a force out there but uh, I'm going to make a number of surprising claims. The very headline one is this, that there is a God who cares, who cares for you. Now that's surprising I want to suggest because um, lots of people's experience of life doesn't match with that claim. And I did a bit of research this week, and uh, not hard to do, just uh, found some testimonies of people who uh, would be utterly surprised by the thought that God cares. Listen to what they've said. I've just got two, two for us this morning. This kind of illustrates the picture I'm painting. I don't believe God is good. I stopped talking and praying to him after I realised that I was getting the opposite of the thing I was praying for. It was like asking my father to pick me up from school and he then went to another school and picked up a stranger. Care? No, I think not. Here's someone else. The universe is a snow globe fallen behind his almighty's desk. He's not even watching us suffer. We are a lost toy. He's probably busy with another universe. He's moved on. Shouldn't we? So to speak to these people and suggest that, no, 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 there is a God who cares, uh, what you're hearing in reverse is, no, no, it's not the case that he cares, he either is completely indifferent and uninterested or he's actually opposed. The thought that God would care is a very surprising thing. And I want to suggest to you, the more you notice the world and all that's in it, the more you'll find the claim that God is a caring God surprising as well. Now that does require you to notice the world and everything in it because uh, that's not a, you live on the central coast, notice that word central, it's intentional, this is the centre of the universe, you don't need any other part of the world and so when you live on the central coast, everything else revolves around us and so oh, I don't know what's going on up there because all I care about is the beach. I mean, I've got beautiful beaches, beautiful... so God cares, yeah, he's having a great time. Um, all life is all rainbows and unicorns and beautiful pink things. But if you live in the real world... If you watch the news, uh, if you have experiences that are very different to that, the world of storms, the world of hurt and grief and loss and death, the world of Palestine, the world of Hamas, the world of terrible terrorists, Ukraine, Russia, if you have any sense of what's going on in the world and the broader scale, you will almost certainly question whether there really is a God who cares. And some of you this morning might have come uh, actually voicing some of those same things. 
that you might have thought he did when you were a child, but as you've grown up and you've seen what's going on in the world, you find it very hard to cancer in children. How can I believe in God who cares? Now, just to say, uh, what I hope you've noticed is that uh, we've gone straight to the problem. We've gone straight to the very difficult questions of life. And there's a reason for that. As a church, we very much have one of our values as a thing where we want to avoid superficiality and sentimentality. We want to go to the real issues. We want to go to the harder issues. Uh, We want to not settle for trite answers. Uh, we want to actually engage with wrestling with the harder things. So that's one of the, one of the deeply held values of church here. If you've come with questions, we love that. And uh, of course, the Life Series is a place where the whole thing is given over to you, throwing out your hard questions, actually wrestling with getting... The reason we are happy with all of this is because we believe the news that the world has not heard is that there's a truth about the Christian faith that's so robust and so solid and so strong, it can withstand our doubts, our questions, our fears. And so that's as a church we want to wrestle with the hard things. So I'm conscious, we're conscious that this verse, this first um, statement of the summer series, that there is a God who cares, that's a big claim. It's a big claim. Um, So what I want to do with you this morning is, uh, under that heading, is make some more big claims. And I'm going to throw these claims out there, not all of them I'll have time to defend, Uh, But I want to move us through eventually into the teaching of Jesus uh, to see what he actually said and taught uh, with the intention that that might help us make sense of the world around us and come to the conclusion, the astonishing conclusion that there is a God who cares and wants a relationship with you. Let me give you the first big claim under this heading. Jesus reveals the truth about God. Jesus reveals the truth about God. We don't have to guess. We're not left wondering. One of the greatest and biggest claims the Christian faith makes is that Jesus, that man who lived 2,000 years ago in Palestine, Israel, in that region, that that man came from God to reveal God. He came to do that at two levels. He came firstly to teach us about God, but he also came to present God to us. I'll come to that second one in a moment. He came to teach us about God. Now, that's a big claim. And you might find yourself wondering, why him and not Muhammad? Why him, not Buddha? Like, aren't these all teachers of God? Uh, We're convinced, and the evidence is there, we understand that Jesus does it uniquely. Jesus does it in a way that no one else on the planet has done. Jesus comes to teach us about God. And he does it in all kinds of ways. And one of the things I want to draw your attention to this morning is that he does it particularly in a story that he told. It's recorded for us in Luke's account of Jesus' life, Luke chapter 15. So Ben read it a little bit earlier. And he tells this story of uh, two sons of a father. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son, if you've heard that phrase before, the prodigal son, or the parable of the lost son. It's a very famous story Uh, you may not have actually looked at the content of it so this morning we're going to actually see what Jesus has to say about this story it is a piece of fiction you get that Uh, he's not saying this actually happened but it's got a deep message to it and it's a lesson to his particular hearers Uh, if you have got a bible uh, uh, chase it up Luke chapter 15 but if you just listen in otherwise Luke chapter 15 now to the tax collectors and sinners Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners were notorious, evil people. And they were being welcomed by Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, the religious hard right, right, the far conservative, down, look down your nose at people, they were muttering, 
This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so it's to those people Jesus tells this story. And I'm going to go through the story fairly quickly, give you a quick retelling of it. Uh, Verse 11, Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. So the younger son, it's always the younger son, I'm the younger son. The younger sons are always dangerous, right? You've got to watch the younger sons. But the younger son comes to the father and says, uh, I can't wait until you die. Give me the money now. And so the father divides the money up to the son. Now just think with me. Who amongst us thinks it's a great thing for a son to come to the father and say, give me the inheritance now? Who thinks that's acceptable? You might if you've got a very wealthy parent and you're in a bad way, but it's a poor relational process, isn't it? Who thinks it's no big deal that a son says, give me your money? Who'd be happy to do it if a child came to them and asked? That's probably the next test, isn't it? It's bad. It's bad today, more so back then in that cultural context. What's worse is that as Jesus tells the story, the one who pushed for the inheritance early, verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He takes the money and runs. He leaves, taking all that the father has given him, dumps the father and heads off. Now, you might imagine, you might imagine in the best case, best world, best of all possible worlds that... um, A father, in his great love for his children, before he dies, chooses himself to share some of his inheritance to help out with the kids, and that would be a beautiful thing. And mum, if you're listening, just to let you know, that would be a beautiful thing. Um, But um, you're meant to laugh a little more than that, but you didn't. uh, (laughs) I'm joking. Um, But, uh, you know, you can imagine that would be a great thing, and, uh, you know, the father is trying to be generous and supportive. But that's not what's happened here. The son can't wait for the father to die he only wants the father insofar as he gets what the father gives he doesn't want the father he wants the stuff the father has he takes what the father's given leaves the father in a profound betrayal of relationship with the father do you feel it He leaves and he goes off, let's say, to discover himself. He goes off to live the best life he can live, which in his mind means leaving his father. If I'm going to live my best life, I need to be away from that man with all the stuff that he has. And so he goes into a distant country. But there he blows the money on debauchery. The elder son later tells us a little bit more of the content of that. But then things go bad, so bad that he ends up impoverished And verse 15, he went out, hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. Now just remember, this is a Jew telling a story to Jews about a Jew. So you're meant to notice the pigs. He has hit rock bottom. There is great shame and indignity in his context. But when he hits rock bottom in uh, verse 17, Jesus tells that the man comes to his senses. He said, uh, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Yes, you have. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Exactly. 
Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. The man comes to his senses and turns back to his father with a beautiful, a beautiful, humble speech. It really is a lovely expression of utter repentance. I'm not worthy even to be called your son. Make me one of your hired helpers. It suggests that the son has realised that he needs to pay his father back. He's taken everything. The father's had to rebuild his wealth. And he realises there's a sense in which I need to hire myself out and get some money and pay it back. There's a bit of that going on here. He heads back to the father. Now, what should the father do when his son turns up on the doorstep? Now, that's a tricky question. Because not many of us have been abused by a son like this man abused his father. But remember, this father has been used, despised, dismissed, shamed, rejected. What would many fathers do with a son like that who turns up on the doorstep? Shut the door in his face? There is so much hurt and anger the father feels that if he did allow the son to come back, it would only be with conditions. All right, you can come back, but out the back. Earn my favour again. You know, you can imagine a father doing that. What does this father do? Well, verse 20. While he was still a long way away, the father saw him, was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Verse 22, he sends the servants to bring the best robe, to cover the shame of his son, to re-clothe the son. He kills the fattened calf, which is not something you did lightly in the ancient world. You don't just go to the butcher. They've raised this very lavish expression of love for his son. And notice this, notice verse 20 again. While the son was still a long way off, The father saw him, was filled with compassion and ran to his son. Now in the ancient Middle Eastern world for a father, a man of great privilege and wealth to run was itself an an act of uh, shame. It was, powerful people didn't run, but he was prepared to run. But what do you you discern about the little detail that Jesus gives to the story? While the son was a long way away, the father starts to run towards him. What does that tell you about the father? He was watching he was watching he was waiting for the son to come back the father had never stopped caring about the son he was waiting for his return to lavish his love upon him now remember why Jesus is telling the story he's telling the story to teach his hearers what God is like and here's the thing just for a moment have you ever thought of God like that, like the father in this story who is waiting for you to come back, who is watching that he might pour his lavish love on you. You know the language of prodigal? Language of prodigal actually means extravagant, lavish and it's a sense in which the father is the prodigal of the story, the one who pours his lavish love. And remember who he's telling this story, Jesus is telling this story to. He's telling it to the religious people, the, the hard men of the religious right, those who look down their noses at others. He's saying to them, God is not only caring, but he is far more caring than you could ever imagine, religious person. And you know what? He's saying to that group, 
You need him to be compassionate as well. You, religious leaders who are self-righteous, you need this compassionate father. That's his point. Because things between you and God are not that great, says Jesus. And it's a powerful piece of storytelling. This, I mean, if this man is not God, I mean, he's an extraordinarily clever storyteller. Because Jesus comes to the end of the story, verse 25, and actually gets to the point of the story, which is the older brother. He says that the elder brother was in the field, comes near the house, hears all the music and dancing, calls the servant and says, what's going on? Um, your father has killed the fattened calf because your, your, your son has come, the son has come back safe and sound. And look at verse 28, the elder brother becomes angry and refuses to go in and join the celebration. So the father went out to him and pleads with him. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me one of the young goats so I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who was squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice this. It's a powerful piece of teaching. The elder brother had not run away. He had always been in the house, but he had not been with the father. You see, notice again verse 28. The elder brother becomes angry. The father goes out to him, pleads with him. But look what the elder brother says in verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Look, you notice what he doesn't, what word doesn't the elder brother use? Father. He never says father. He's been in the house, but he's not been with the father. He's been in the house all the years, been slaving for the father, not in relationship with the father. He doesn't know the father. He is not like the father, but he's never run away. Whereas the youngest son, how many of my father's hired servants? I will set back, go back to my father. Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer... It's the father that captivates the younger son. But it's the tyrant that captivates the elder son. He is distant and cool towards the father. The point Jesus makes? Both brothers were lost. There was the obvious one who was lost who left home, messed up, failed, was immoral, hit rock bottom, but there was the less obvious lost son, the religious son. Both needed a God who was full of compassion because there is no one righteous, not even one. We have all become worthless. And let me just uh, make a comment to you amongst us who are religious, as many of us are. And I make this comment to you who are religious, with those of you here who are here this morning for the first time, watching on, because I want you to watch this. We don't think we've got nothing to learn. We think we've got a great deal to learn, and we let the Bible tell us what we need to learn. And you need to watch that happen. <laughs> Cheer it on, if you like. You religious people amongst us, me included. What is God to you? Do you know him as a father or as the taskmaster? Is he someone you want to know 
and be like or are you just putting in your time with him to get what you can from him? How are you towards God the Father? You know, this is an astonishing piece of teaching by Jesus. Um, What he's saying is that the father of the story, religious leaders, is what God's like. It's what our God is like, says Jesus. The true God, the creator God. He is like the father of the story. He cares for all of us. But a great number of people don't believe it. The quotes I gave earlier, lots of people hear this claim, big claim, uh, that there's a God who truly cares and find themselves going, nah, that's not my experience of life. Now, why is it that people find it hard to believe? I want to take you through a couple more big claims, which I suggest will take us deep into our circumstances, our life and our world, give us some insight into what's happening to help us understand why we find it so hard to believe that God might be a God who cares. Let me give you the next big claim. These go fairly quickly. The next big claim is the world is not as it's meant to be. This will help us understand why we can't see that God is a God who cares. The world is not the way it's meant to be. It's meant to be different. The world is meant to be a place of beauty, goodness, peace, happiness, joy, harmony, life. But instead it's a world full of hurt, loss, confusion, loneliness, greed, selfishness, death. The world we're in was meant to be like the home of the Father. Where everything was good. But instead it's like the distant country where everything has gone bad. Now that's a big claim and I'm not going to spend much more time on it just to say the Bible teaches the world is not as it's meant to be. Big claim. Next big claim. It's our fault. It's our fault. It's the way it is because we took the Father's wealth, turned our back on the Father and ran to a distant country where it's all gone bad. Now, you might ask yourself, when were we ever at home to take the Father's stuff and run? Well, again, big things, I know, big things that are being said from the Bible. The Bible actually uh, paints a very large picture of humankind and the universe, the world we live in. And it says, way back in our first parents, they did it. They turned their back on God, the Father who walked with him in the garden, took the things of the Father, rejected, rebelled against him. And as a consequence, God the Father cast them out. We ended up in a foreign country, a, far, a place far from home. They turned their backs and we, their children, are born in the world that was a consequence of their choice. A consequence of God's righteous judgment upon their choice. So we are now born into a world of loss, hurt, and death. It's the way it is because we turned away. More, it's the way it is because we turned away and God gave us over to our desires. There's a really quite profound passage of the Bible, Romans chapter 1, which talks about how we neither glorified God as God nor gave thanks to him, but in our thinking became futile. We gave ourselves over to created things and God in his great just wisdom said, if that's what you want, you've got it. Have it. Have the world that comes as a consequence of you living for yourself. And so he gave us over to our foolishness. Like the father in the story, God gave us what we wanted and effectively says, 
see how that turns out for you. And look at how it has turned out. Look at the world we're in. There are moments of beauty. There are moments of wonderful joy and happiness. But there are moments that get tarnished, that get unraveled, that get undone, that get crushed. Are we getting better as a society? On some things, but on other things, much worse. And on balance, we've made no progress at all. This is our world. Now, I'm conscious that if you're new to all of this, these are a massive set of claims that the world is not the way it ought to be, that it's our fault. You're kind of, wow, wow, wow. But I would offer just this thought. There's much more to offer, but I haven't got time for it. But I would offer this thought. Don't you sense that it should be different? Don't you sense that the world should be a better place? Now, buried in that little thought that you have is, a, is the idea of an ought. That, that if you do have the sense that it ought to be different, well, that suggests there's one who made it to be otherwise, and it's not that way. If it's all just evolutionary, then what we are is what we are. But the fact that you wonder about the world, the fact that you puzzle about it not being the way, says that we were made for something. Get this, friends, you and I are unique of all the creatures on the planet. Do you know how many dogs do you see gathered late at night chatting about the world and why it's the way it is? You know, how come the world's like this? How come I only get this much food? What's going on? They don't care, right? We are not just evolved animals. There is something profoundly different about humankind that makes us ask the question. And the Bible says it's because God's put eternity in our hearts. He's actually made us in his image. He has created us for something far more. And your experience of life fits the narrative the Bible paints for us. Now, that's not evidence that it's true. It doesn't mean it proves it, but it certainly is tantalizing. We've been made more for more by a caring God, but we turned away, and this the world we're in as a result. Now, two big claims. It's not meant the way it's meant to be. We made it so by God and his judgment upon us. This, therefore, makes it hard to see that God cares. How? Well, because we live in a world that's fallen and broken, it means you can't look at the things of the world, the happenings that go on, and immediately recognise the caring hand of God. Because we live in a far country. There is some things that you can look at and you can go, that's God's care. But then you look at other things and you go, that doesn't look... What is it? Let me say, there, you know, rain in season. You look at that and you go, God is beautifully generous and giving us rain through our crops and sustaining the world. Isn't that wonderfully kind of God? But then you look at the rain that turns into a flood that devastates and you go, where is God? He looks like he cares. But he doesn't look like he cares. Or you go, the sunshine, isn't it beautiful? It's a spring day, it's wonderful to sit in the warmth of the sun, but then you see the baking heat of the sun that causes drought and devastation and crops that fail and the people starve. And you go, where's God in that? And so depending on what you look at, you end up with different conclusions. Which one should you look at? The caring bit or the uncaring bit? What's the truth? Where's God? The answer is the world is not as it's meant to be. Where to blame? So you can't read off the events of life and see the care of God. Is there a way out of all of this? Big claim number one. Jesus is God revealing himself. Jesus comes to show us what he is truly like. 
If you're going to know the truth about God in a mixed up world, if you're going to know the truth about God, you need to look where he says to look, where he says we ought to look and not where you want to look. Jesus comes not just to teach us about God, but to show us who God is. Because the mind-blowing truth claim is that Jesus is God, come to his world. The author of the book enters into the book. The infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, boundless, uncreated, life in himself God binds himself into creation. He enters into his created world. To live with us, to become part of it with us. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Because he loves us so much, he came for us. To make it possible to have us back, to make it possible that the Father can welcome us back and take us into a new creation. You see, think with me again about the Father in the story. The father welcomes the son back. Question for you. Is that an easy thing to do? To have had a son who uses and abuses you, takes everything you've got, and then destroys his life, comes back and says, I'm here. Easy for the father to go, yeah, welcome in. Easy to do? No. Let me give you a lesson on forgiveness. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing. But it always costs the person who forgives. Forgiveness is a beautiful thing. But it always costs the person who forgives. If you have ever been wronged, you will know something of what I'm saying. For you to forgive the person who wrongs you will cost you. The son comes with that beautiful speech, uh, I'm not worthy to be called your son, make me a hired helper, thinking perhaps he can repay the father. But the father will have none of that. He absorbs the cost of the son's betrayal into himself. He pays the price and simply forgives the son. And to give some sense of the power of this, let me add another story. Because I, I find myself unable to hear all of this without my mind drifting to a story, a true story of uh, an adulterous husband with his wife. And I'm, and I'm conscious as I say this that it's triggering for some, you've been, some of you have been where I'm about to tell you. And I'm, please forgive me, maybe stop listening. I know it can be painful, but let me give you this too. A true story. A woman, um, husband was travelling a lot, uh, away from home a lot. And over some years, she began to wonder what was going on, became suspicious, and long story short, discovered actually that he'd been having an affair with a woman overseas. Um, he he realises when he's back that she now knows, and uh, and is deeply uh, shattered. comes to comes to his wife and says, "I'm so sorry." Question for us is: Should his wife have him back? Answer: No. There's no obligation on her to have him back. He has broken the marriage vows, broken the covenant between them, and so she is not required to have him back. Um, There's a very great sense that he is now completely at her mercy. He says sorry, but saying sorry doesn't mean she has to have him back. It's not a way of earning forgiveness. He, He is entirely dependent on whether she will graciously forgive him 
Now, this woman knew the grace and mercy of God in her life and so was ready to forgive and extraordinarily forgave him. But to do that cost her. And it wasn't clear to him that that was the case until one day he came home early from work and uh, went into the house to try and find his wife, couldn't find his wife, but heard sobbing upstairs, went up into the room, came to the door and heard behind the door his wife sobbing in prayer to God, saying, God, give me the strength to forgive. Give me the grace and mercy to forgive. And it dawned on him in that moment that her forgiveness cost her. It was costly to her. She had to bear his sin to forgive him. Now, psychologists amongst us might have much to say about how she could process all of that, but the point is forgiveness costs the person who does the forgiving. Always the case. The prodigal son comes home and he finds his father ready and full of forgiveness and acceptance. Now, this is just a story. It's an analogy Jesus is using, so you know, we, he doesn't explore the depth of these things. Um, but we do see the depth of these things in the one giving the story, the one telling the story. Jesus. Jesus comes to teach us and show us God, but he comes as God amongst us. He, comes at, he is God revealing himself to us. And he comes to make it possible for the forgiveness that the story talks about. He comes to make it possible so the Father can forgive anyone who comes back. There's a dark side, a costly side to God's forgiveness. God can't or won't just sweep our rejection under the carpet. To do that would be to say that our sin is of no account, that rebellion against him and the devastation we've caused is of no account. He can, God won't do that. He can't do that. He must pay. It must be paid. So God comes in the person of the Son, and there's much more to be said. We haven't got time for it. But he comes in the person of the Son to absorb into himself the devastation of our sin. And this is the heart of the Christian message, the cross. God comes in the person of the Son to die, to take into himself your guilt, condemnation you deserve. To suffer the consequences that we each deserve. So that God the Father can receive us and forgive. Such is the love and care of God. The the love and care of God that Jesus portrays in this story only takes us so far. It shows of the welcome the Father has. But what Jesus adds to this picture is that for the Father to do that, meant he needed to come into the world, that God needed to come into the world in the person of the Son, go to the cross and die so that that welcome could even be possible. The father in the story, Jesus likens that father to God. But more than that still, God isn't just waiting to receive us. He comes searching for us. He comes into the far country, into the mud with us. He comes into the pigsty and then absorbs all the guilt and judgment we deserve into himself so that if and when you come back to your senses, the holy God of the universe can welcome us back. Now, what do you do with that? Because that's number five. If, oh, no, to those who come back, you will be welcomed fully and freely. Now, friends, what do we do with all of this? 
I'll tell you what all of this is about from God. Jesus tells this story. Luke records the events of Jesus. What is all of this about? It's God's invitation to you to come back into relationship with him. The issue at the heart of the story of God's care, the father in the story, is the fact that each son, in their own way, walked away from relationship with their father. And the father, extraordinarily astonishingly, had a heart for both of them. He had a heart for the rebellious one, the one who walked away, and he had a heart for the religious one, the one who didn't walk but kept his distance from God. Both were lost from relationship with their father. And God the Father wants relationship with both of them. Did you notice that the father goes out to the eldest son? The eldest son's all angry and devastated and can't bear the fact that the son might be forgiven and won't go in, petty as he is. But the father humbles himself and goes out and pleads with the son. He doesn't wait for the son to come to him in the same way he did with the younger son. Which are you this morning? Are you the youngest or the oldest brother? You'll be one or the other. If you're the youngest, it'll be that you've walked away from God and you've done it deliberately. you've, You've gone into a far country, you've committed crimes, you've abused and used people you've destroyed your life you've hit rock bottom it might be that you're here this morning because you've hit rock bottom you've started something's happening but you're the youngest son you've walked away or it could be that you're sitting amongst us and you're the eldest brother you still believe in God you throw off a prayer you try and keep the rules and be right with God you try not to do bad things terrible things and you expect that because you're so good It'll all be okay when you front up with God. You're the eldest brother. Relationship with God, though, you don't think like that. You don't know God. You don't know him as father. You don't sense that he cares for you. Church is full of older brothers. What do you do with this? Well, both of you need to come back. And you can. Because the claim of the Bible is that God's care of you is so great. He has come for you. He has paid for you. So that you can come back. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. What to do? Recognise and accept. Allow. That it's God's care that means you're even here today. I had a lovely conversation with a woman last week and then this week who found herself through a various set of circumstances here at church. Something happened in her life and you might be here, I'll tell you what I said to her, but you might be here this morning because something's happened. Someone's invited you and you said yes. Or something's happened in your life to trigger an awareness that there's got to be more. You might have hit rock bottom. You you, you might have been driving past and just this trigger. Something's happened that means you're here this morning. What is that? It's God chasing you. That's what I said to this woman. He's chasing you. He wants you. He's come for you. He's not just waiting. He's actually come after you. And this is God's 
severe mercy in our lives sometimes to break everything in our lives, to bring us to rock bottom, to go, what am I doing without God? Why am I in this place? To bring us to our senses. Don't waste your cancer. Don't waste the devastation of relationships that are happening around you. Don't waste all that. It's God crying out to you, come back. Look at the country you're in. Look what you've done. Come to your senses and come home. What do you do with all of this if it's happening in your life? Don't fight it. Go with it. Come back next week. Sign up to life. Ask questions. Grab a Bible. Find out more. God is doing something. But what do you do if you're here every week? Well, I'd urge you this morning to take time this morning to check on your relationship with God. Is it possible you're the elder brother? Is it possible for you that God is just God? You don't have a relationship with him. You don't pray. You you don't know him. You don't want to know him. You don't want to be like him. You just want to do as much as you can do to make sure you're okay. You're the elder brother. You're just as lost. Some of the evidences of being an elder brother is that you're, you're quick to judge, you're quick to critique, you're slow to actually go out to others and find mercy and forgiveness. You can be harsh, self-righteous. What are you? If you were like our God, the one who comes for us, who pleads for us, who is humble enough to run, to come and send his son to die, if you're like that, Father, you will delight to show forgiveness to others. To seek to know this God and learn, be under him. To humble yourself under his mighty hand because he cares. To learn to work humbly before him and show mercy yourself. Powerful teaching of Bible, isn't it? Bible is extraordinary. Come next week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for uh, your revelation to us. We thank you that you sent your son that we might not be left wondering about the circumstances of life and what we're to make of them all, but that we can go straight to Jesus and see who you are in him. We thank you for his teaching, but we thank you for his lavish sacrifice that makes it possible for us to come back to you and be welcomed and received and adopted and loved. We thank you for all of this. I pray for those amongst us who don't know this, that you might... Keep working in their life. In Jesus' name, amen.